Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. Now, on today's episode, we aren't going to be going into the details of a specific job per se, which is what we generally do on an LED episode. But we are going to be talking about a very interesting and relevant topic. And we have an equally interesting guest on our show today. His name is Christopher Lockhead. And before I describe what we'll be talking about today, let me give you a very quick introduction to Chris. So Chris is a former three-time public company CMO. As an example, he was the chief marketing officer of Mercury Interactive, which was acquired by HP. He is also the co-author of the book Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. And as an example, this book has a testimonial from Mark Benioff, who's the founder and CEO of Salesforce.com, where he says that every entrepreneur looking to alter the landscape and every CEO looking to reimagine their business can learn from Play Bigger. Chris is also the co-host of the Legends and Losers podcast. Fast Company magazine calls him a human exclamation point, and The Economist calls him off-putting to some. So yes, we have a very interesting guest on our show today. And what we'll be talking about today is the concept of category design. And this is an area that Chris talks about in his book. And the idea here is that the success of a company depends not only on the product that they're building or how well they design their business or their company, but very importantly, on the category that the company chooses to operate in and how they define that category. And Chris says that this concept can be applied not only to companies, but also to individuals and their careers. So I think it's a very interesting discussion. I think you will enjoy it. I certainly enjoyed it. Quick warning, there is some swearing in this episode. But yes, with that, let's welcome Chris. Hi, Sonali. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Chris. And uh, good morning. It's a lovely Sunday morning. Good morning. It is a lovely Sunday morning. And I I have a feeling it might be the... uh, the calm before the next uh, 437th storm hit Northern California this winter. <laughs> that is true. Actually, we went for a drive yesterday to Half Moon Bay, and we were surprised to see just how green everything is now after the rains. It's so much more green compared to, let's say, a few months back. Yeah, it almost looks like the hills of uh, Scotland or Ireland right now around <laughs> here. Yeah. So I have your book right here with me, Play Bigger, and I've made my notes here and there. And as you suggested, I read the chapters that you wanted me to read, but the book's actually very good. So I plan on reading the full book and talk about category design with you. But before we get there, I was thinking that, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, if you can just give us a brief overview of your career so far and, uh, you know, the key things that you've done. Sure. At what level of detail would you like me to answer that question? You want the two-second yeah, answer or the two-hour answer? Well, uh, somewhere in between. So how how about uh, how about a 30-seconds answer? So just sort of like, I, I know that you were the CMO of a few companies. Maybe maybe talk about some of the earliest things that you did, like you talk about in the book, and then also talk about what gave you the idea to write the book Play Bigger. 
Sure. Um, well, I got thrown out of school when I was 18 for being stupid. Um, school was not a, not a great place for me. I found out later when I was 21 that I was dyslexic and all of a sudden that kind of uh, made my education and frankly a lot of my life make sense. But So at 18 years old, I found myself out of school working a manual labor job. Um, I wanted to be a musician. The band I was in had broken up and I didn't know what I, what I wanted to do and was kind of in that place. And um, I had made a decision that I really wanted to do something uh, with my life. I sort of um, decided enough was enough of kind of being a, if you will, a loser, that I wanted to try to do something legendary with my life. And, um, and my dear friend Jack Hughes um, uh, was working for a small software company in, in Montreal, Canada, where I was born and raised. And um, he, the PC was exploding. And he said, hey, let's start a company. Uh, doing custom development and training and helping helping companies embrace personal computers as a business platform. And uh, I didn't know anything about um, technology. Uh, I failed grade 10 math. Um, but uh, Jack said, you're the best sales guy I know. Uh, I've been an entrepreneur since pretty much the day I was born. And, uh, and so away we went. And um, from there, the three sort of uh, big things that I did in my career, you mentioned I was chief marketing officer of three publicly traded NASDAQ tech companies. And uh, most recently, a company called Mercury Interactive that was acquired um, uh, by Hewlett Packard for about $5 billion approximately 10 years ago, making HP my favorite company of all time. And then um, so 10 years ago, I retired, if you will, as a player and, um, and became a coach. And for the last 10 years, I've been coaching executive teams and CEOs in uh, marketing, uh, business strategy, and of course, category design. And then um, in 2016, I hung up my uh, players, excuse me, my coach's jersey, and uh, I'm now retired from being, uh, being a coach and, uh, if you will, living, living happily ever after in, in beautiful Santa Cruz, California with uh, <laughs> my wonderful wife, Carrie, our, our, seven, uh, our seven dinosaurs and a, an amazing group of uh, friends and family. Wow, that's quite an introduction and you've had a full life. I, I do want to ask you about some of the things that you mentioned. So you, you said that when you were in school, you were perceived as stupid, but you were dyslexic. So how did that impact your life then? And what have you done to overcome, you know, any challenges that that poses? Yeah, great, great question. So, you know, I didn't know I was dyslexic and nobody else did. Um, and so back then people were not aware of it. I've actually learned that um, the level of awareness in, uh, you know, K through 12 education today, at least from what I've seen from some of the children in my life, I've been stunned actually with how ill-prepared it appears that a lot of our education system still is to deal with uh, uh, what I what you could think of as learning differences. Mm. Some people call them disabilities. I, I reject that notion. Um, and so the effect for me, Sonali, was that um, starting in about grade three, uh, a huge part of education started to shut for me. You know, so reading is incredibly difficult. Uh, writing is incredibly difficult. Math is incredibly difficult. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other things that uh, come with my dyslexia. Like I, I never know where the fucking keys are. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, there's some spatial things and some other things that come with it. And so, you know, th that was really hard to deal with because as a child, I realized on one hand that I had some, some pretty extraordinary skills mm. and those started to show up. 
But at the same time, I had some pretty huge deficiencies, and, and those were very hard things to rationalize. Can you can you talk more about both of these? Like, what were the extraordinary skills, and you you did mention the challenges you faced, but what was the positive side? You know, on the positive side, if you go back and read my um, uh, report cards, you see stuff like you know. Christopher is very good in, in, in music, art, and drama. He's just not applying himself in math. Mm. Mm. And so, if you will, the creative part of school opened up for me. I was a decent athlete, not a great one, but a solid you know, athlete. So uh, playing sports, um, while not like a huge forte of mine, I was always a good athlete. And uh, even though I grew up in Montreal, Canada, my, my favorite sport growing up was uh, baseball. And I was a huge Montreal Expos fan and played baseball and, and, you know, lots of other sports. My dad, uh, my dad, Bruce, uh, bless him, taught me to ski at a very young age and skiing uh, continues to be a huge uh, passion and, and um, an incredibly important part of my life. Yeah. And so I had other things in life, but um, the, 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 you know, it, the more analytical side, if you will, of education just started shutting yeah. progressively. And then my mother, you know, she she didn't know what was going on, but she could tell something was off. She's not a dummy. And so she figured out that she needed to do something different in my education. And so she found a, a fine arts school in Montreal where uh, 50% of the curriculum was music, art, and drama. Oh, wow. And, okay. and that literally saved me because as one part of the world was shutting down and I was getting C's, D's, and F's over time, uh, this other part of the world was opening up for me. And had she not been able to find a school that could nurture the creative side uh, of my brain, so to speak, um, you know, I, frankly, I don't know what would have happened. Because yeah. as you know, children are trying to figure out where they fit in the world. And um, if you can't sort of find a place where you fit, um, you know, things become incredibly challenging. And uh, by putting me in a fine arts school, at least... I, although I was failing in a huge part of my education, I, I was succeeding in, a, in another huge part of my education that had she not found, all there would have been would have been the failure. Yeah, I'm sure it must have done a lot for your confidence also, right? Because especially as a young child, it's very easy to start actually thinking that you're stupid that and that's definitely not good for you. I, I also want to understand your mindset a little bit. So you mentioned that, um, I mean, yes, you got into this art school, etc., but you were sort of in uncharted territory, so to say, at least compared to the majority of the children. And then you met your friend who was starting this PC company and you decided to band up together. So, I mean, just looking at your background and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that you had any prior experience or exposure to this space, apart from maybe being a user. So what was your thinking at that time that, hey, let's just, you know, let's just go ahead and start this company and then we'll see what happens. Like what, what went through your mind? So I was always a very confident kid and feeling feeling like there was this hidden part of me that was, uh, you know, stupid, so to speak. I, I was afraid of being outed, uh, if you will, that people would find out that I was stupid. But, but on the other hand, you know, I was incredibly confident. I was always um, a fighter. I was always a warrior. I was always uh, determined. Um, you know, to do something great with myself. And of course, I had huge moments of, of, of fear and uncertainty uh, along the way. And, and when I learned that I was dyslexic, then everything made sense. It was like, okay, n now I got what this is, and I can kind of wrap my arms around it. Mm -hmm. um, 
But the other thing I want to make sure, uh, you know, is clear, um, approximately 10%, according to researchers of, uh, the population is dyslexic. Hmm. And, um, there are huge, huge advantages that come with it. And so while there are clear disadvantages, um, you know, I, I don't know my wife's phone number and I can never find my keys. Um, I can do things, um, that, you know, a lot of other people might find difficult. And so there is a huge hidden potential, if you will, uh, of being dyslexic. And if you look at a lot of, um, incredibly successful people, particularly in fields of entrepreneurship, innovation, art, music, drama, et cetera, you start to notice a lot of, uh, dyslexic showing up because, you know, there's that old expression, you know, think out of the box. Well, for most dyslexics, uh, they haven't even seen the fucking box. And so um, they just tend to have a different perspective on life. They tend to be more, if you will, uh, top down thinkers, that is to say, big picture thinkers than bottom up uh, thinkers. Most people, if they're going to try to learn something new, the way they go about it is they, they, they learn all of the piece parts just like they would a puzzle. And as they learn the piece parts, they put them together and then, the, if you will, the big picture emerges. Um, I'm not an expert on dyslexia. I'm an expert on my own situation. <laughs> but I've talked to a lot of other dyslexics. I, I've read a lot. There's a book, if you're interested, that I highly recommend called The Dyslexic Advantage. Um, okay. uh, by two MDs. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I was just able to cultivate those other sides of, of my brain, if you will, and to get really good at a handful of things that, um, you know, over time have made a huge difference for me. So can you share an example of the kind of out of the box thinking that one can expect from you on a very routine basis? Yeah. Uh, so one of my favorite expressions is, um, uh, are we having the right conversation? Hmm. And so I am a listener for context. It's actually how, how, how I got to category design, which we can talk about if you like. Yeah. And so most people, when you engage them in, in a dialogue or when something gets presented to them, they accept the context of whatever it is and they just engage in it. And uh, that's not how my brain works. I look at this and go, well, how does this fit? And so um, I think uh, a lot of dyslexics, but certainly myself, we're always looking at where does this fit? What's the big picture that this thing fits in? And how does it connect to the rest of the world? And so it's not unusual for dyslexics to actually see patterns um, that other people don't see. And so, you know, for example, category design. Most people, when they go to start a company or even if they're at a, you know, a Fortune 500 company, if they're trying to launch a new product or service and they're hoping that product or service will do incredibly well, most people never even stop to consider what's the market this is in. Why does this market work the way that it works? Does it need to work this way? Should it work a different way? And most importantly, who set up the game in this market? Mm. So, for example, why is it that a pair of high-end sunglasses can cost $300 and a fairly high-end flat-screen TV at Costco is $150? Mm. Somebody set that game up that way, or those two games, if you will, those two market categories. Somebody decided what was going to be a, if you will, fair exchange of value 
And somebody then evangelized to the world the problem and the solution that, in this case, either high-end sunglasses or flat-screen TVs, uh, what's the problem and then the solution, and, and then establish a value in our mind. And nobody thinks about those things, Sonali, so, or nobody. Very few yeah. people think <laughs> about those things. So I look at it and go, why is it a piece of technology that speaks to a satellite in space is 150 bucks? And a piece of plastic that goes over your eyes is 300 bucks. And so whether it's about a, a something that's market-oriented, I also think about why are things the way they are in the world. When my mom, Jackie, was a, a, a kid, her first job when she was 16 working uh, in a factory in Canada, and she's in her 70s today, so this would have been in the, in the late 50s, 60s, um, early 60s. She is making minimum wage in Canada. And I think at the time, if my memory's right, it was 50 cents. The 16-year-old boy working next to her is making minimum wage in Canada on the same assembly line. He's making 75 cents. Uh-huh. That was the federal law in Canada. Mm-hmm. And so I said to her mom, were women upset? And she said, at that time, no. We didn't even think about it. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, why? And she said, the thinking at the time was, uh, women go to work, they work for a very short period of time, they meet a husband, they get married and have children. Women or men stay at work until they retire and generally get married and have children. And therefore, men have to provide for a family and women don't. Therefore, the federal law gives men more than women. Mm-hmm. But we all know what happened. Mm-hmm. Somebody decided the context for that law, that mm-hmm. that type of thinking didn't work yeah and 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 a mantra got developed which you might think of as a point of view called equal work for equal pay and people took action and over time that point of view changed thinking and that thinking changed language and that changed language ultimately changed laws and so one of the things I'm a student of is the context in which things occur and so to get back to my original statement, Sonali, you know, I'll be in a conversation with somebody and I won't just engage in whatever the conversation is. I try to think about, OK, well, is this the conversation we really want to be having or not? Mm. And so that's kind of what I mean by top down versus bottom up. Um, what's the architecture? What's the, if you will, the design of what we're talking about or in, or the design of a market category or in the case of um, the example I gave with my mom, the design of a social set of thinking that leads to laws and, and why did it, why is it that way and is it right and should it be a different way and if it should, how do we make that happen? And so um, that's one of the big things that I've always thought of. Um, yeah. you, you might think of it as sort of um, making your niche versus finding your niche or you know, on a personal level, um, there's some people in the, in the world who are lucky enough to be able to find their place in the world. And I think that's a meaningful percentage of the population, best I can tell. But for many of us, we can't find a place and because there really isn't one and we have to make our place in the world. Yeah. And so, um, you know, those things are fascinating discussions for me. Yeah, and I can imagine that if this if this kind of thinking comes very naturally to you, it can be very, very helpful. And this is what you talk about in the book also. I think there's one phrase that you mentioned. Uh, you said something to your co-author, Dave, 
right in the beginning that uh, you can either position yourself or you can be positioned. So uh, which really struck with me, I, I think uh, this concept of category design is very important and how it's important to find something different rather than just better where you're competing with others. So I, I do want to talk about category design now. Maybe you can just give us a brief overview of uh, what this concept is and then we can talk about how it applies to individuals and their careers. Yeah, so what I'd share with you is, um, you know, category design really, for better or for worse, is uh, has been a huge part of my life's work. And, uh, you know, I'll speak for myself. I uh, played bigger. I wrote with uh, three other incredibly smart, incredibly committed guys. And it was uh, the collaboration with them was one of the greatest, um, greatest things I've ever been associated with. And I'm incredibly proud of the work. Um, what I would share with you about category design is, if you take a step back and study the uh, entrepreneurship and, uh, if you will, um, innovation and business creation, and you say, okay, well, what is it that most people do? And you unpack that at a high level. What you, what you get to is most entrepreneurs, most CEOs, most business executives at a high level pull two big levers, product and company. So that is to say they, they create a product that they believe is absolutely awesome. They have a, a belief in that product that is so ingrained in their DNA that they fundamentally think that all they need to do is put this legendary new carbodingulator in the world and the world's going to figure it out. And all we need to do, the more people that we can do a demo for, Sonali, the better off. <laughs> and our, yeah. pro, our product is so legendary, it'll speak for itself. You know, in Silicon Valley, we pray at the altar of the algorithm. If you if you listen to most technology entrepreneurs and really most entrepreneurs, they will always tell you it's about the, the product is what carried the day. Okay. And so that's where they sort of really ground themselves. And then the second thing they ground themselves in is is a company. That is to say, they build a company and a business model um, to deliver that product. And those are the two big levers that they pull product and company and whatever happens they just pull those levers harder competitor attacks let's get them with more features uh let's let's today people are talking about hybrid business models we're going to be direct we're going to be indirect we're going to be subscription we're going to be one-off we're going to sell through a channel we're going to we're going to sell online we're going to we're going to have mobile apps we're going to do all this stuff and so they they work on their you know i bought a pair of men's underwear recently and now they're trying to get me to subscribe to men's underwear i don't know why i need to subscribe to underwear but that's what they're trying to get me to do right and so product 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 company 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 and uh, whatever happens good or bad that's that's where we go well very few entrepreneurs step back and say what market category is my product going to live in Very few people even think about that. And so what you discover when you begin to study, okay, so what was it that Jobs did? Because Jobs was different. Henry Ford was different. Elon Musk is different. Mark Benioff is different. Larry Ellison is different. In the beginning, Bill Gates, very different. These, These legendary entrepreneurs that we can all name did something very different. They didn't just product and company their way to success. They actually taught the world to think about a problem and a solution in an entirely new and different way. And as a result of doing that, Sonali, an entire new market category showed up. And those are the entrepreneurs 
that pull three levers, product, company, and category. That is to say they design what they hope is going to be a legendary version of all three of those things. And they do it in a way, and I'm going to use this word on purpose, that is different, not better than what came before. And when they launch their product into the world, they don't do marketing in a traditional sense. And listen, I'm a three-time chief marketing officer. I think I get to say this, okay? Hmm. They don't do marketing in the way most people think about marketing. Most people think about marketing as demand generation, as, as branding, okay? And those two things are important parts of marketing, but they're not what leads to legendary companies. Legends create new categories. Before Steve Jobs, there was no category called tablet. Before Zuckerberg, there was an emerging category of um, social network, but it hadn't come anywhere close to tipping. By prosecuting the magic triangle, that is to say getting all three things right, product, company, and category, Zuckerberg crushes the dozens of competitors that are uh, there at the time, many of whom were uh, first to market or are ahead of him in the market. But he viewed what a social network was completely differently. And he taught the world to think about a social network the way he did. And in specific, the problem called, how do I digitally recreate the physical relationships I have with people? Yeah, so... And by... Go ahead. Go No, no, please com uh, complete your thought. Uh, and so his definition of what a social network should be and the problem it solves and therefore why his solution mattered is what made the company, not his product. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying his product didn't matter. His product did and continues to matter tremendously. All three parts of the magic triangle matter. But what most people would think is that um, uh, even though Zuckerberg wasn't first to market, his product was better and therefore he won. And that's not what happened. What happened was he evangelized a new design, a new paradigm for what social networking should be and what problem it should solve. And he spoke uh, and evangelized that very powerfully. And when you and I resonated with his, and I'm going to use this phrase on purpose and only point of view mm. about what a social network should be, when that made sense to us, we all logged on. Yeah. Yeah. And that didn't happen for, uh, you know, many other uh, social networks. Right. And so my point is the odds are against every entrepreneur and innovator. Less than 2% of startups are ever successful. Today in America, we have an entrepreneurial crisis. More companies die every week in America than are founded. It's a terrible thing because I believe the American dream and the entrepreneurial dream are inextricably linked. And what I've learned in 30 years of trying to unpack, well, what is it that the legends do that's different? And in our book, we, do, we did hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of data science research, and we looked at both the qualitative and the quantitative side. And on the qualitative side, the big aha is they do three things. They prosecute this magic triangle, product, company, and category. They do not leave it up to chance. They, they educate the world about how they want people to think about a problem and a solution. And that's how Reed Hastings creates Netflix. He doesn't attack Blockbuster head on. Yeah. He says there's a different way to do that. And once we accept his new design, then everybody stops buying from Blockbuster 
And so he doesn't compete in a traditional sense, and ultimately, Blockbuster goes bankrupt. And so the point of category design really is to help legendary innovators and entrepreneurs with a new management discipline that if they do these three things as opposed to the two things that they had done historically, then they can, in a material way, just like Henry Ford or just like Steve Jobs, increase the likelihood they're going to be successful because they take the category, they take the market into their own hands. So actually, I I mean, this is really, when I was reading your book, I was thinking about, wow, Sonali, how am I applying this to my life and my career and even like my, say, my podcast? So I think there are two things that really stand out for me. One is that this point that you brought up about marketing, which is that it's not just talking about your product. It's not just talking about your solution, but to actually talk about the category or the problem that you're solving. You have to first connect with the people that and help them understand your how you're defining the problem. And then they automatically assume uh, that since you seem to understand this problem so well, and I think I have this problem, they just think of you as the person who has the right solution for it. Or at least that's what I sort of took away from the book. That's exactly right. Yeah. And and the other thing that you talk about is how, you know, it's no, no longer enough for a company to just think about their product and their company, but to also think about their category. So do you think you can give examples of how a- any company that you that you like, how they evangelized the category as opposed to just their product? Yeah, I'll give you a, an example of a big company that most people would know and, and, and an individual that most people wouldn't know. Um, so one of the greatest category designs working today in the world is named Mark Benioff, mm. uh, category designers. And Mark is an entrepreneur who founded a company called Salesforce.com. And uh, what Mark did was he redesigned this category called Salesforce Automation and now today a Customer Relationship Management or CRM for short. And everything about what Mark did was different. Uh, Mark today is a billionaire. Uh, he owns uh, an island in Hawaii. And most importantly, and from a business context, he um, almost single-handedly created the biggest shift in modern tech history, which is the shift to the cloud. And um, we talk about how he did it, if you if you want, in any level of detail you like. But at the core, he believed there was a new way to do computing that was different from uh, building giant data centers, running databases and servers and security and ultimately applications on your own uh, in your own physical uh, property. And the vision he had was that you could just go and log on to a website and have access to all of your customer information. And um, that today sounds like a no shit Sherlock because it's, you know, 2017. Mm-hmm. But in 1998, 1997, 1999, when you went to a chief information officer of a major Fortune 500 company, Sonali, and you said, hey, listen, here's what we'd like you to do. We'd like you to give us all of your customer data and your forecast data and tell us who all your salespeople are. <laughs> And then you're not going to buy our software. No, you can't buy it, actually. You're just going to rent it, and you are going to use it over this thing called the Internet. And um, we're going to store all this shit for you and uh, put it in this thing called the cloud. Hmm. (laughs) Most CIOs would tell you, I mean, you've got to have to be out of your mind. We're going to give you our customer data. It's the most extraordinary 
almost everybody at the time, Sonali, said, this is the dumbest idea ever. And uh, Brian Roberts, the legendary uh, VC at Benrock, uh, said in our book, things go from non-consensus to consensus fast. And the reality is it's taken Benioff almost 20 years to get the cloud to become common sense. And But by evangelizing the cloud and most importantly evangelizing the problem, his point of view was summarized with a, uh, a picture of the word software and a round, round circle with a red line through it. And he said no software. A software company saying no software. And all he did was kept talking about the problems of CRM and the problems of this thing that he called and he invented this term on-premise software. Yeah. And he imbued that term with a whole lot of negative meaning. And today, the number of companies that want to buy and install, you know, SAP software on their in their data center is shrinking by the second. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's very hard to get anybody today to even consider running software on premise. Uh, everybody wants it in the cloud, and so that's an example, Sonali, of a legendary category designer who took a product who if he had not positioned it as such, people would have looked at it and said, this is the craziest idea ever. But instead, he built an argument, he committed himself to evangelizing the problem and the solution, and one man almost single-handedly created the cloud. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's almost like when you're creating something which is so different, if you're just going to talk about what you're building, no one is going to believe in it or or think about trying it out. Or as you're saying, like they'll just say that this is dumb, like get lost. So you have to talk about the problem you're solving first and get their attention and then suggest what you're building. So um, I want yes, to... Remember, people, um, people don't buy solutions unless they have problems. One of the greatest things I've heard recently is fall in love with the problem not the solution. But most innovators, most entrepreneurs are 100% focused on the solution. Mm. Oh, c- come to my trade show booth and let me give you a demo. Well, you know, what we need to do for marketing is we need a better demo of our product on our homepage. <laughs> you know, the more people who see our product and play with our product and features, the more they're going to buy. And, and it turns out that's just not the case. Yeah. So I'm very curious about how the same concept can be applied to individuals and especially how can individuals A, define or identify what their category is and then B, evangelize that category. So and, and in the book, you do share some examples and you do talk about how this is very much the case. You, you applied category design to your own life, Chris, and uh, so did your co-author. So can you talk about if if let's say... I'm an employee at a large company, right? Pick any profile. You, you could pick a designer, maybe you're a software engineer, whatever it is. Uh, how would I think about applying category design to my life or to my career? Yeah, very, very good question. Um, and it's uh, it's predicated on a very simple, uh, what to some might even sound like a throwaway line. But if you think about it for more than two seconds, it's incredibly profound. And you mentioned it earlier yourself, Sonali. Position yourself or be positioned. So what does that really mean? Well, it turns out that human beings put everything, whether it's a product or a person, into one of three buckets. Love it. Not sure. Hate it. (laughs) 
must have considering not interested. Mm. That person is legendary. They don't suck or they suck. If you start to look at it, human beings put everything, a new restaurant, a new movie, a new computer, a new person they just met, an employee who works for them, the executives in their company, their boss, into one of those three buckets. If you and I go out to dinner tonight to a restaurant neither of us had been to before, maybe we heard about it, whatever it is, when we walk out of the restaurant, Sonali, what are we going to say? That was great or not great. Or it was kind of so-so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so what a category is ultimately it's a bucket in our head that provides a frame of reference. Another way to think about this is uh, everybody uh, listening to uh, our podcast right now and yourself and I included, we've all been to a grocery store, yes? Mm-hmm. When you walk into a grocery store and you apply, we call category design a new lens, it's a new way of thinking, a new way of looking at things. Well, what you're now going to notice when you walk into the grocery store is, how is the grocery store organized? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Where is the milk? Where is the bread? Where is the meat? They're all in different aisles. Mm-hmm. And so the grocery store is organized by category. There is a entire aisle in most uh, grocery stores today of frozen food. Well, guess what? Every product or service that you and I love exists because a legendary entrepreneur prosecuted the magic triangle. That is to say they got product, company, and category right. And most of us don't even realize it. So for example, if it weren't for a guy named Clarence Birdseye, there wouldn't be frozen food. Hmm. There would be food and there would be canned food. (laughs) And I could tell you the story, uh, Birdseye Foods today is still the number one provider of frozen food in America. And a young man in the 1920s and 30s had a vision about how to freeze food. And he worked diligently to create a company, a product, in this case, a process for creating a product, and ultimately an entire ecosystem to deliver against a new category of food. And you and I take frozen food for granted, I have a giant bag of fro. Actually, my, my my fridge is full of frozen peas, and the reason it's full of frozen peas is my dinosaurs like to eat them, and it's very convenient to uh, uh, throw some uh, a bowl of frozen peas in the microwave, warm them up, and give them to uh, my seven hens, and they love them. And I, every time I do that, I have Clarence to thank. And so my point is the way the human brain works is we put everything into these buckets and that's how we organize everything, including people. And so if I go back to your question, Sonali, about on the personal level, Hmm. there's been a lot of talk over the last at least decade or so about something called personal branding. Well, guess what? For the most part, in the absence of a personal category design, Personal branding is a giant waste of time and money. And the reason for that is at its core, what branding is about is creating awareness. 
And it's predicated on an ancient marketing concept that most people today are not really that aware of called reach and frequency. And what reach and frequency says is the more people that hear my brand name, the more often, the better off I'll be. What I'm saying to you is a brand in the absence of a context, nobody pays attention to. Mm. And here's my proof for it, Sonali. According to Apple, there's over 2 million apps on the Apple App Store today, the iTunes App Store. The same is true for uh, Google's Android Store. So, And, of course, there's some overlap between those apps. So let's say for sake of argument, there's 3 million apps in the world. Well, how you know, and they can scream their brand all they want. You know, the brand of your app is Fred, and you can scream Fred, 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 and you can buy Super Bowl commercials that say Fred is awesome, Fred's amazing, Fred, it slices, it dices, it, it does the laundry, Fred, Fred, Fred. Well, if nobody knows what a Fred is, no one's going to care. You and I get between forty to 60,000 marketing messages a day. Without a context, hmm. I'm not going to pay any attention. In other words, when somebody hears about a new brand or a new product or a new technology, often the first thing they say is, well, what is it? Hmm. And when they say, what is it? What they're saying is, what category is it? Put this thing in a context that I can understand. So, for example, when Henry Ford launches the automobile, he's smart enough to understand that if I say, ta-da, the automobile, nobody's going to know what he's talking about because that's not a word they've ever heard before. And most people, when they hear something they've never heard before and they don't know, they assume it's stupid because if I don't know about it, it's stupid or I'm not going to pay attention to it in a world of forty to 60,000 marketing messages a day. That, that, that's not even going to come across the, 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 the registration in my head, right? Mm-hmm. And so what did, what did Henry do? He told the world it was a new category. And what did he call that category? Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Horse on? No, I don't know. I really don't. Yeah, he called it the horseless carriage. Yeah, okay, yeah. So he took the current category, horse and carriage, horse and buggy, and he redesigned it in the beginning by describing what it's not. And then over time, the category definition, design, and name morphs into what it is. Mm. Ten years ago, we called the things in our pockets that we use to talk to each other a wireless phone. Exactly the same as a horseless carriage. We're putting it in the context of what came before, which is a wired phone, and we're describing it by what it's not. Today, for the most part, we call those things what? Mobile phones. (laughs) Uh, I think today most people call them um, um, smartphones. Smartphones, yeah. So we're beginning to describe them with attributes that they have as opposed to attributes that they don't have. Yeah. But yet the word phone is still in the name. And who knows for sure, but my strong suspicion is 10, 15 years from now, the word we use to describe that thing won't be phone. Yeah. So this is this is very good, Chris. I think what you're saying is that you not only do you need to like brand i think you're referring to brand as basically the name so in the example that you gave it's friend no i mean brand in the biggest sense of the brand okay and this is an important thing for people to understand because on an individual level and on a corporate level most people are wasting their time and if, if you're the chief marketing officer of a major company or a startup you're wasting potentially billions of dollars on asinine branding hmm. so i'll give you a specific example kodak has a legendary brand and nobody gives a fuck. 
1999, Dell Computers had one of the five most powerful brands in technology. In 2017, nobody gives a fuck. Mm. Xerox used to be one of the most powerful and valuable companies in the world with one of the most powerful brands in the world. Today, their brand is not worth very much. Now, the interesting thing about all those companies is all those companies still have legendary products and still have le are legendary companies. What changed? Oh, and they still have amazing brands. What changed? The category shifted. Right. The reason no one gives a fuck about Dell today is for the most part, they sell laptops, servers, and desktops. Well, guess what? In 1999, those categories, those markets were red hot and they were leading and designing and defining those markets. Well, today, those markets are dying. Why? Because cloud, mobile, social, uh, Internet of Things, now AR, VR, all these things are starting to emerge. And you don't need to buy servers when you're going to put everything in the cloud for our, our Benioff Salesforce discussion. And so if Dell, if they were to take a traditional marketing approach, a traditional marketing approach would say, hey, we need to go work on our brand. Hmm. And so what I'm saying to you, Sonali, is everything we know about marketing is actually 180 degrees backwards or said in a different way categories make brands not the other way around so a personal branding strategy or a corporate branding strategy in the absence of a category design strategy is a giant waste of money people doing personal branding you, th you think i want you in my inbox screaming your name at me no Here's what I want to know. What problem do you solve? What makes you different? Hmm. And why should I care? That's so, personal category design. And if I care about the category, I care about the brand. If I don't care about the category, that is to say the problem, I could give a f about the brand. And that's why Xerox has a legendary brand and it's completely meaningless today. And so the more money companies or the more time and energy individuals spend on a branding strategy in the absence of a category strategy is the degree to which they're stupid. And now I say that to be purposely provocative. You can't be stupid about something if you've never even heard about it, right? And so most people just accept the context of the market or the category that they compete in and they never even think about it. They don't do what Bird's Eye did, which is to say, I'm going to teach the world to think about food differently and accept a new type of food called frozen food or do what Steve Jobs did when he stood up on stage and said, there's a, there's an iPhone over here and there's a MacBook over here. And we believe there's room for a third category of device in between those three. And now let me tell you why. And when he laid out that argument, people lined up at the Apple store. And so the category makes the company. And what I would say on a personal level, your category, your personal category design is the number one predictor of whether or not you're going to have a legendary career. It's because if you don't do it proactively, the world will position you. So, yeah, but I, I do want to dig deeper into this and, you know, try and see if there are any specific examples that we can share with listeners. So let's, let's take, uh, okay, again, let's say I'm a designer, right? What, what are the examples? I'm a product designer, web designer. Let's say I'm working in a large company. 
how would I go about thinking what my category is? Yeah, great question. So the first way to answer the question is what problem do I solve? The next question is why does that problem matter? Hmm. So, so let me give you an example. So a very dear friend of mine, he's the founder of a uh, nonprofit organization that I've been uh, helping and an advisor to since, <laughs> since before Tim, his name's Tim Rhodes, since he started the, the, the organization. The organization's called OneLifeFullyLived.org. And the mission of One Life Fully Lived is really simple, is to help people uh, dream, plan, and execute and live their best life. And so it is an organization that's trying to take a lot of the personal development uh, uh, thinking in the world and uh, uh, thinking about how to be an entrepreneur, thinking about how to take financial responsibility for your life and so forth and make those tool sets available to people for as close to free as possible from a nonprofit. So that's what One Life Fully Lived is. Yeah. So the founder of the organization's name is Tim Rode. And Tim and I are good buddies. He's an amazing uh, mountain athlete and he is my backcountry skiing um, uh, you know, personal coach and, and uh, the, the guy that I just love to be in the backcountry with. And um, how he got to be so successful and how he got to retire so early was he, he, uh, he like me, grew up on the island of Misfit Toys. He doesn't have a college education. And ultimately, he, um, through a life of struggle, he ultimately ended up finding real estate. And when he became a realtor, the common thinking in real estate at that time was the pathway to success in real estate when you became a new realtor was you had to get out there in the community and get to know as many people as possible. And the way to quote unquote network was to knock on doors and say, hey, um, uh, you know, you may not be interested in selling your house right now, but I I'll give you a free market assessment and tell you how much your house is ready and, and you know, do a big cuddle cuddle with you so that if and when you're ready to sell your house, hopefully you'll think fondly of me and you'll give me the listing. That is what they teach you at realtor school. And I'm not a realtor, but to the best of my knowledge, that's still what they teach you at realtor school. Tim Rhodes said, I am not running around the neighborhood chasing all these people to see who might be and who might not be. No, I'm going to specialize. And so he positioned himself. He redesigned in his market what type of realtor he was and the problem that he solved. And so he decided, I only want to deal with people who are serious about selling their house. I want to do the exact opposite of what most people in my industry do, which is what I just described. And so his point of view, and I use that term on purpose, was call Tim Road and start packing. Mm -hmm. And everything he did in his marketing was, don't call me if you want a free market assessment. Don't call me if you're thinking about moving in 14 years or some other bullshit. When you know you want to move, you call me and I'm going to tell you what you need to do to sell your house in three days. And if that's what you want to do, I'm your guy. And if not, off. right? That was the positioning that he wanted to take. And it was counter to um, what the vast majority of realtors uh, in right. our country and in his market in, in, in the Central Valley of California were doing. Then when he went to go, do marketing Sonali, he didn't do the traditional shit. He did this very fun, very zany marketing. He did television advertising and so forth. And he would do something zany like um, uh, he would say, oh, you know, I'm jumping at the I'm jumping for the opportunity to list your house. And then he would stand there in a suit at a bungee jumping facility and jump off a bridge uh, while, while screaming, call Tim Road and start packing. And 
he did this for years. And so what happened was his reputation was as the guy you call when you're serious about selling his house. Well, guess what? He became the category king in his market. Yeah. He became the most dominant listing realtor in Manteca, California. So much so that he was able to retire in his 40s and now he's a real estate investor and he, he runs a charity called One Life Fully Lived. And so what's my point? Tim Rode, while not being trained in category design, if you'd ask him then, you know, is that what you're doing? He, he, he wouldn't have known that, of course. But he, like Jobs in, in Jobs, Steve Jobs' world, intuitively understood something about the market that most people don't, which is if you teach the market to think, and I'm going to say these words on purpose and only, differently about a problem, and position yourself as its solution, you by definition become what's known as the category king, the leader in that segment of your market. And so did Tim Rode invent a whole new uh, type of realtor the way uh, Birdseye did with food? No, but he did in his world of Manteca, California, redesign what a a realtor was. That is to say, he educated his market to think about uh, the criteria for selecting a realtor Mm. that was different than the criteria for selecting a realtor that had been the norm. And by doing that, that, and I'm going to underscore this word on purpose, difference is why Tim Rhodes retired living in the Sierras, having a legendary life, and running a charity. And so to get back to your question, if you're a, if you're a web designer working with 250 other web designers, the question is, what makes you different? Mm-hmm. What problem do you solve? And why is that problem worth solving? And if you can be viewed over time as the person in the niche called solving that problem, it may be a very small niche, but you can be the category king of that niche. And if you don't, just like we talk about in in our book, Play Bigger, the world will position you anyways. Mm -hmm. This is is a very, very good point, Chris. I think the way I'm reading this is that you are an individual at the end of the day is also some kind of a company, right? Or the parallel is very much the same. Like you are your product and you need to figure out what should people think about like okay why should i contact sonali this is a problem that sonali solves so if in the case of the web designer xyz designer is synonymous with excellent at solving this problem so as opposed to just being another web designer i should try and become synonymous with being the best at solving some problem and you identify what that problem is but yeah and, and when you say best this this part's really important not best like i'm better Yes. Yeah. Like I'm different. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a new problem. No, I, and I, and I, and that is an important point to, I think, uh, clarify with listeners, which is that you do not talk about competing with others on the same problem. And no, she's just better or he's just better. You're different. You're actually different. You're not competing with others. You're probably the only one there, at least in the beginning for quite some time. Um, so here's another example that, that, uh, hopefully will resonate with people. Um, if I say to you, uh, you know, who's the most famous painter, living or dead, in the world? Who's the first name that pops into your head? Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci, right? And for a lot of people, that person's Picasso. Hmm. So let's 
Da Vinci is a different conversation, but let's have a Picasso conversation. Have you ever seen any of Pablo Picasso's uh, early work? Oh, I'm not the right person to be talking to about this. And, and I'm no art expert by yeah. any stretch. But if you look at his early work, what you see are very nice paintings of flowers and landscapes and people and I don't know what. And those photo, those uh, photo, uh, photographs, th those paintings are very nice and whatever. I have no skill set in being able to evaluate them as, as paintings, but they look great, but they're completely, I'm going to use this word on purpose, undifferentiated. Mm. Here's what I would posit to you. If Pablo Picasso kept painting those paintings, we wouldn't know his name. The greatest thing he ever designed was a new category of art called cubism. Mm. Right. That's true. So let's take a step <laughs> back and unpack this, okay? Yeah. This guy decided that he was going to get nowhere painting sunsets, I don't know what. And he had, for whatever reason, this vision. And when people first saw it, they looked at it and said, this looks like the, the work of a, you know, six-year-old mental patient, right? It's like, what, what is this? It looks, it looks completely insane. It's craziness, right? <laughs> yeah. And so for, if you think about this for a second, Sonali, in order for Pablo Picasso to be successful as a painter, what was required was a completely new definition of what art was. Yeah, yeah. He had to give the world a new context with which they could view his art because if they looked at it through the old lens, it looked insane and stupid and childish and whatever other descriptors you want to put at it. And when you looked at it through the lens that Picasso wanted you and I to look at it through, it was absolute creative genius. Mm -hmm. That's a great example. There's, I think there is a famous painter in Germany who, who I don't know if his paintings are any good by the sort of traditional standards, but all his paintings are with pig's blood. And I guess that's his category if you want to get paintings. With that's made. exactly right. Yeah, my, right. Favorite, my favorite rock band of all time is called the Ramones. And the Ramones came to popularity in the early to mid-70s and 80s. And uh, at the time in rock music, what was incredibly popular was more and more complex uh, music that was technically uh, uh, very powerful and excellent. So you had you know progressive rock bands like Rush and Yes and uh, certainly Led Zeppelin and you know, all of these these oh, and, and Peter Frampton you know with his incredible guitar playing and all of these amazing musicians creating incredibly complicated uh, you know diverse music. Well. You know, these four guys in New York weren't didn't have those skills, but they wanted to be a band. And so they learned four chords and started a band. Well, when most people heard it, it sounded like shitty noise. And when you compared Eric Clapton or Rush or Led Zeppelin, you, you go, well, you know, Rush is incredible, artistic yeah, music. And this is just noise, guys bashing and crashing. And the Ramones said, well, don't compare us to Led Zeppelin. Don't compare us to anything. We're a new kind of rock music called punk rock. And punk rock is about something else. And when you got what punk rock was, 
you actually change the way you listen to music. Hmm. And when you apply a different criteria of what is good music to listening to the Ramones, all of a sudden you could hear what they're doing differently. But if the criteria that you use for deciding whether you like it or not is the same as when you listen to Led Zeppelin, you're never going to like the Ramones because <laughs> it is going to sound like noise. Yeah. And so whether it's Picasso or the Ramones or any legendary innovator over time they got all three things right product company and category and when the world sees your product and your company through the lens that you want them to that's when something magic happens that's where legendary happens yeah actually this reminds me of this famous video with steve jobs where he talks about that once you realize that the world around you is just made by people who are as intelligent or dumb as you, you realize that, you know, these are just rules made by someone else and you can make your own rules. Uh, I do want to follow up with one more thing, which is, let's say an individual is able to identify this is the problem that I'm solving, which is my category. So in the case of the web designer, let's say she says, you know what, if you want a design, if you want a website that just looks pink, I'm just taking an example, right? I'm the, I'm the princess of pink websites. Uh, now, how should I go about evangelizing that category? Knowing that, you know, I, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not an, I'm not an entrepreneur in the traditional sense. I'm, I'm an employee. Of course, you should think about yourself in a very entrepreneurial way. So what, what are some examples you would share or tips you would think about, suggest for evangelizing my category as a, as an individual? So beyond what we've already talked about, once you get clear about the problem, then um, there's a, a set of grounding, if you will, that you want to do about that tsunami. And so the big the big thing that grounds people here is to get clear about uh, what we call in the book Frodo's or from twos. Uh, if you listen to the audio version of the book, I think Sean, our, our uh, legendary narrator, I think he calls them uh, fro twos. But anyway, from twos. So I'll give you a simple example we can all relate to. Um, um, uh, before Netflix, the paradigm in video rentals was I drive to a store. I return the movie that I have. I probably pay a late fee. Uh, and then I look for the movie that I want. They probably don't have that movie. I have to talk to a sweaty kid with zits behind the counter and ask him where the movie I want is. And, oh, that's not available, but maybe you'd like to see this. If I'm there with my family, I have to have an argument with them about this as we all run around trying to figure out what plan B should be. And, uh, and then I get plan B and come home and generally everybody's, you know, slightly pissed off. <laughs> and so that was the paradigm. Mm -hmm. And Reed didn't show up and say, hey, we are a better video store. He didn't say that. He evangelized a different experience. And so if you think about it, if you were to write down everything that you knew at the time about the customer experience of going to a video store, returning a video, all that, write those things out. And then you'd say, okay, I have the vision to be um, Netflix. You know, this is 1998, 99, somewhere in there. And you take each of those froms and you say, how's it gonna be in the future when we're successful? And so you get really clear about how you want the world to change around your category design. You take the current paradigm, whatever it is, and you recast it 
as the old way of thinking, the old way of doing things. Those are the froms. And you get very specific. You used to drive to a video store. Now you go to a website. You used to pay a late fee. You don't have a late fee anymore. There's a subscription fee. You can keep it as long as you want. Um, you used to be unsure whether you were going to get the video you wanted. Now you're sure because you type in all the movies that you like and they come to you in sequence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all Frodo's. So if you go back to your designer and you say, okay, I get clear about what problem I solve. And I say, what do people today who have that problem do? Hmm. And those all become your froms. And what you do that's different becomes the twos, the way you want people to think about your type of web design. And then you develop a very simple point of view predicated on that. Call Tim Road and start packing. Incredibly simple. I see. Right? Yeah. But, but incredibly different. And very powerful if you can pull it off because I mean you're right if you if you are able to over a period of time establish yourself as the guru person for that particular problem uh, I mean I think the statistics in your book is that 70 80 percent of the market I mean quote unquote market in this case will go to you so so the the research that we did and this is data science research this is not an opinion we, we studied every venture back tech company founded from 2000 through to the end of uh, uh, 2015. And we built a big data store of, of uh, available information regarding valuation, age, growth rate, et cetera. And because we had that information, one of the things that we studied, Sonali, was unlike most marketers who ask the question, what percentage of market share goes to the leader, which we think is an important question to answer. We asked a question that we didn't see anybody else answering, which is what percentage of market cap, that is to say total value created, goes to one company, goes to the leader. And what we found in the tech space is that number 76%. Hmm. So one company gets two thirds of the total value created in any given market and everybody else fights for the table scraps. And if you look at what's happening in our world, Sonali, whether it's on the individual level or on the corporate level, we are increasingly living in a winner-take-all world. Yeah. Where in category after category, one company, or in the case of realtors in Manteca, one company is the one, or one guy is the one that dominates. Yeah. And so we can have a conversation about whether or not we think that's right or wrong or the social impact of that. I'm happy to have all those discussions. But what I'm sharing with you and your listeners is the reality of the world that we live in is in your market, one company is going to take two thirds of the economics. If you're that company, life is good. If you're anyone else, you're going to get Jack Welsh's old mantra of Jack Welsh, the former chairman of, of General Electric, used to famously say, we, meaning General Electric, need to be number one or number two in, in every market we compete in or we're going to get out. The new reality is you're either number one or you got to get out. And it turns out that's true on the individual level as well. And yeah. so if you're one of 10,000 web developers that is completely undifferentiated, guess what? The world will position you. If you get proactive and you position yourself, things will be different. Yep. And then just Can I share with you a story about this? Yeah, yeah, sure. 
a buddy of mine uh, called me pretty recently. He's a very successful entrepreneur and executive, and uh, he had exited his last company, and he's been taking some time off, and he has an idea for starting a new company, and he's also sort of toying with potentially joining existing companies. And so he was calling me to talk to me about all that stuff and where he was in life, and and, and that's always a conversation I, I love to have with uh, you know great people. And um, as part of that discussion, Sonali, he says to me, oh, can I send you a copy of my resume? I'd love to get your feedback because I'm going to go out and meet you know, some headhunters and venture capitalists and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, I can give you my feedback on your resume. But just so you know, I think we're having the wrong conversation. And he says, well, what do you mean? I said, listen, you're a senior executive. You're an entrepreneur. You're incredibly well-known in our industry. Why would you let yourself even get positioned yeah. as a candidate? Yeah, yeah. You're not a candidate. You are, you know, I said the guy's name. And I explained to him, I have not had a fin resume since I was, I don't know, in my very early 20s. And I know this might sound arrogant, but my resume is I'm Christopher Flockhead. You know, Google my ass if you need to. But like, uh, and so... That may be overly arrogant in some people's minds, but in a job search situation, what I was sharing with my friend is, if you let yourself, if you submit yourself to their candidate process, and you, then you are one of 20 people they're looking at for this job of CEO or COO or whatever job you're going for, and you're submitting yourself to their context And therefore, you're allowing yourself to be viewed as another, quote unquote, CEO candidate. Mm. You got to figure out how to position yourself. And what I would say is legendary people at that level don't have a goddamn resume. And so I'm not suggesting you everybody in the world doesn't need a resume. But what I am saying is if you let yourself be a normal candidate, they're going to treat you like a normal candidate. Which means you're going to get paid. Look, uh, the last job, okay, the last executive job I had when I was negotiating my comp package, and they came back to me with this bullshit. They said, listen, we had our head of HR go and run all this research and rant, rant, rant. And, you know, we, we found out that the package that we're putting in front of you for a company of our size is in the top 4% or 5%, you know, based on all of the comparable companies and CMOs for those companies. And I said to him, listen. That's not the right comparison. <laughs> well, no, I said something even more uh, clear to them. If you are comparing me to other CMOs in the enterprise software business, we're having the wrong conversation. And so if you think that a, a, a traditional enterprise software CMO can do what needs to get done here, then you should go hire that person. I'm not that person. You can't even compare me to them. Those people, those people can't even carry my jock strap. Okay, <laughs> and so I do not accept this research you've given me, and I certainly don't accept this comp package. So if you think you can hire somebody at this price point to go do what we've spent the last three weeks talking about, then you should go hire that person because you don't need my ass. Yeah. yeah. And guess what happened to my compensation? <laughs> Position yourself or be positioned. And what happens is because most people don't realize, A, you're going to get positioned anyway. 
you're going to go into one of those three buckets. You are. I guarantee it. We love that person. We think they're pretty good. We're not sure. Or they sucked. And most people make that decision about other human beings instantaneously. And if you're not proactive about designing where you want to fit in the world and positioning yourself there, then the world's going to do it for you. And you'll be one of 500 candidates that they're looking at. Just another developer. So I I just want to very quickly get into the tactics of how you would do that because, uh, and it probably sounds like a very, very tactical question it is, but I, you know, it helps people give some sort of path forward. So I think you shared in the book examples, like, you know, just the kind of stuff you share on LinkedIn and Twitter, or the way you, you present yourself in meetings. These are all ways in which you can start to evangelize that this is what you stand for, right? I mean, ultimately, you need you're evangelizing what you stand for and how that's... Well, no, you're evangelizing a problem. Mark Benioff, to this day, screams no software. Hmm. Hmm. So fall in love with the problem, not the solution. That's why in every conversation I've ever had with a potential employer or a potential client or you know some company that wants me to go on the board, it doesn't matter what it is. I center the whole thing around what, what problem do you guys need to solve? And I spend the, frankly, the whole discussion trying to position myself out. Uh, you don't need me. Just, just go hire a regular marketing guy. Yeah. Right? And so um, when you do that, what you're doing is you're teaching the world how to think about who you are and specifically the problem that you solve and why that problem matters. And if they agree with you that they have that problem and that problem matters, then you're the person they need. This is where branding now comes in, right? Mm. I'm the number one brand in a category that I design around a problem that I say matters. And if you identify with that problem, then you need, and if it's we're talking personal category design, you need me, whether I'm a web developer or an accountant or a realtor or, or a potential CEO candidate. Yeah. But if I'm just a generic CEO candidate and you're going, we're just going to tick some boxes. Okay, uh, Harvard MBA, tick, uh, 15 years of experience as a CEO, tick. Uh, then you're, what's going on when that happens, Sonali, is there is a design in uh, the potential hire ahead of what, a, in this case, a CEO or a web developer looks like to solve whatever they think their problem is. Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to fit you into your design. Look, here's what, here's what we explain. Here's what I explain to salespeople. If you're in B2B sales, enterprise sales, I say, look, do you want to be the company that is helping your prospect write their RFP? Or do you want to be the company responding to the RFP? Because the vast majority of RFPs in the B2B world are influenced by at least one, if not many, vendors. Okay? And every salesperson says the same thing. I want to be the guy influencing the RFP, not the guy getting it in the goddamn mail or email. Right? Well, what category design is about, Sadali, is writing the RFP for your space. (laughs) You're right. Yeah. So if you're a web developer, where do you specialize? You know, what's your superpower? What I just wrote a great blog about this about our dear friend 
uh, Dushka. This is a woman who's found her superpower and designed a whole new category around it, mm. right? Dushka Zapata. Mm. And, 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 and so it's so doing Dushka is in a category that she created and she is, if not the most popular writer on Cora, she's pretty damn close. And uh, she now has more followers on Cora than Hillary Rodham Clinton. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. And for listeners, Dushka is a top writer on Cora and she's come on the podcast before. But Chris, this is a really, really good. I mean, there's so much food for thought in here. And I think you say that in your book also that, I mean, clearly this is not easy to do. It requires a radical change in thinking. But if you can actually go through this painful process and just change the way you think. I don't think it has to be painful, Sonali. It can be a ton of fun. It's work. Yeah. You got to figure some shit out for sure. But it can be a ton of fun. I just I just did this with a, an old dear friend and, and mentor of mine. And we had a blast doing it. Mm. And we came up with a couple of big ideas. And he went out and played with them. And then we locked and loaded. And and his new category design is making a huge difference in his business. And, you know, we did that over some phone calls and some, some Zoom calls. And, you know, he read the book and we worked on photos and we began to develop a POV and, and we played with it and had fun with it. And so is it work? Yeah. It doesn't have to be hard work. It's creative work. It's thinking work. And it requires you to think, see, once you... Kevin Maney, uh, my co-author, one of the one of the uh, three other guys I worked on the book with, um, you know, he's a legendary author in his own right. Uh, he was really our, our our writing guide, if you will. Um, uh, he's he's the lead tech commentator for Newsweek, and he was at USA Today for years, and he's written a whole bunch of best-selling books, The Two Second Advantage, and uh, you know, a bunch of others. Kevin Maney, look him up; he, he's a genius. What he says about category design is it's a new lens. And if you start to pay attention, just pay attention to what things are called. When I was a kid, the people who lived on the street were called homeless, were called bums. Today they're called homeless people. Well, why is that? You and I think differently about a bum than we do about a homeless person. Mm. When I was a kid, uh, there were used to be uh, a car dealerships that sold something called used cars. What are they called today? pre-owned cars <laughs> why is that and so a demarcation point in th thinking can only create a demarcation point in reality in the world with a demarcation point in language that is to say if you want people to think differently about something you've got to give them the language to think about that and when you do you can change their perspective and when that happens at scale that's how you get uber or that's how you get Tim Rode, the realtor in Manteca, right? Yep. And so what I'm saying to you is, yes, it's work. But if you don't do this work, the world is going to position you anyways. Yeah. And so number one, how do you want to be positioned? Because it turns out you can do that proactively. And number two, and this is the hard thing for people to accept, is – one company in every category gets 76% of the economics. That's true for human beings too. Yeah. At GE, there's a lot of accountants. There's one chief financial officer. And so what I'm saying is if you do not position yourself, you have outsourced your place in the world to other people. 
your success is a function of how other people position you. And what do I mean specifically, Sonali? I guarantee you, look, this is what's going to happen. We're going to get off this podcast and I'm going to go and see my wife. And she's going to say to me, was that a good podcast? And I'm going to say to her, one of the three things, it was great, it was okay, and it sucked. And Sonali will forever be positioned in Carrie's brain based on (laughs) what I say about you. And that happens to you and I every day. And so if we don't get proactive about that, we leave it to chance. Yeah. And if Picasso had left it to chance, he wouldn't have become rich, famous, and most importantly, produced a giant breakthrough in the interpretation of art that was inspiring and motivating to millions of people and now for multiple generations. If he just left it to chance, if he never said the word cubism, then maybe the world would have figured it out and maybe the world wouldn't have. God, I love that example. But I think I'm going to end up titling this episode position yourself or be positioned but <laughs> thanks a lot chris i mean seriously this is very very good uh I, this is work i think that everyone should do and uh i would definitely highly recommend reading your book play bigger it's available on amazon uh so people should check it out but thank you so much for your time chris this was amazing thank you so much my pleasure sonali thank you all right take care bye-bye bye-bye Alright, so that was Christopher Lockhead on Category Design. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion and if you enjoyed it as much as I did, you should subscribe to the podcast. Simply go to our website at learneducatediscover.com where you'll find links to the podcast on iTunes for Apple users and SoundCloud and Stitcher for Android users. On our website, you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter as well as get access to a whole bunch of other career resources. So do check out the website at learneducatediscover.com. Of course, if you have any questions at all for Chris or for me, you can email us at hello at learneducatediscover.com or tweet at us at LED underscore curator. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash learneducatediscover. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and for your time. And until the next one, adios.